Welcome to Textual Therapies with me, Emily Trishanko. The series explores what we know, what we think we know, and what we need to find out about how texts and health relate to each other. In this episode, I talk to Kelly Park, a medical student at the University of Southern California, and Rachel Fox, a PhD student in the Communication Department at the University of California, San Diego. They tell me all about how and why they created a series of workshops using narrative to combat weight stigma and what they learned in the process. I'm Rachel. I am a second year PhD student at UC San Diego. I'm in the communication department, the science studies program, and the graduate specialization in critical gender studies. I was pre-med in college and discovered the body positivity movement actually midway through my senior year and had kind of a crisis. Um, Started questioning objectivity and the validity of all the knowledge that I was learning and whether I really wanted to go into a system that felt kind of oppressive to me that had never really served me very well. And then eventually decided that I didn't, didn't want to go to medical school, which was very destabilizing (laughs) for someone who had worked really hard to do all the pre-med stuff and um, pretty serendipitously found a link to the narrative medicine program at Columbia and kind of grasped onto it as like my saving saving grace and um, applied to the program and got in. Really didn't quite know what I was in for when I applied, but it ended up being really transformative and helped me transition out of the hard sciences and into the social sciences and humanities. So that was a couple of years ago and I've been doing this work ever since. Fantastic. And how about you, Kelly? You're a medical student, is that right? Yes, I'm a medical student. I did not expect to be in medical school, so it's sort of a different parallel, but not really, story to Rachel's. I studied chemistry in undergrad, and I thought I was going to go into chemistry grad school. But after doing a couple years of full-time research, I realized that I wanted to kind of expand into other areas of, like, humanity, not just the humanities. And I thought, well, I have the prereqs down. I think that medicine is really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it seriously before, but I, it became more attractive to me the more I looked into it. So I ended up in medical school, but I also knew that being someone who was already kind of critical about medicine and unsure about it from the get-go, throughout medical school, I was always in the position of wondering, well, is what they're teaching us here correct? Is it something that I want to take with me into my future practice? And something that I witnessed right away when I started medical school was the way that people in medicine talked about like fatness and weight and fat people and how it seemed like a foregone conclusion to most of my classmates and faculty that more weight equals like death. And I really wanted to get at like breaking some of that down And then I met a fellow classmate who had participated in the same narrative medicine program that Rachel mentioned, and we got connected, and here we are two, three years later. (laughs) So tell me about how the project that you've been talking about today arose. Well, I, I kind of talked about it a little bit before, but I had actually participated in narrative medicine workshops that were run by this mutual friend of ours and felt totally transformed by the experience. I studied chemistry, but I went to a liberal arts school, so I was always doing lots of different kinds of thinking, and I really liked that narrative medicine allowed me to think on many different levels. 
And so I thought, well, this is like a perfect platform for people to be really vulnerable with each other and to acknowledge like inadequacies in their thoughts and their beliefs. And what better way to tackle a problem like fat phobia medicine than narrative medicine itself. So Rachel, could you give us a brief account of the method or the types of text that you use and also what you found then as a result, both on the quantitative and the qualitative side? Sure. So just in thinking about the workshops themselves, I was really adamant, inspired by sort of the mantra of disability activism, Mm -hmm. nothing about us without us. When Kelly and I started talking, one of the first things that I insisted on was that we have fat participants. And that was really, it was kind of a personal idea. I kind of knew that it had some significance, but didn't quite know the significance of it when I was first set my heart on doing it. And it ended up being really theoretically significant for our methodology mm-hmm. as well as actually significant for our results. So the way that our workshops went was we did the standard narrative medicine workshop for the beginning of each session. So we would pick a text beforehand and pick a quick writing prompt for that text. So our participants would come, we would close read the text together. We did essay for week one, poetry week two, slam poetry for week three. Week four, we did actually comparative photographs from Nona Fostein's White Shoes series, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And then for our final session, we did creative nonfiction using a short essay by Roxane Gay, which also fantastic. And so we would close read together, do the quick write to the prompt, and then share the writings. But we had this feeling that that wouldn't quite be enough to really bond our participants together. Do you want to take over? Yeah, so a component that we added to this traditional workshop format was this longitudinal prompt that we had. So at the very beginning, we gave our participants the prompt of write about a clinical encounter where you witnessed or experienced fat phobia. And each week, we asked our participants to rewrite this narrative in the style of the text that we analyzed during the workshops. Not only do that, we asked our participants to bring back their longitudinal writings to each session and workshop them, workshop in kind of a loose way, but just share these writings with a fellow participant and kind of have the opportunity for feedback and for sharing their stories, not just in the act of writing, but also in the act of like sharing and sharing in the feelings and emotions produced by what they were writing. Did people find that difficult to do? Actually, I think there was something that some of the students mentioned and also the participants, which was this like mutual fear that they didn't want to offend the other person. I think for medical students, I mean, it's sort of a self-selecting group, like medical students interested in narrative medicine, interested in fat phobia. I think some of them expressed this like hesitancy about how to talk about this topic and even surrounding the language of fatness and weight stigma itself. Like we use the term weight stigma because it is a less polarizing term than fat phobia, but even by the end, medical students were still struggling with the use of the word fat as this like neutral descriptor of size rather than using it as a pejorative. And I think some of the community participants spoke about being unsure about meeting up with the people that they had so far seen as like their oppressors, people in the medical establishment who had caused so much trauma and damage to them. But So for the research purposes, after the workshops, we did focus group interviews. Actually, we didn't do them. We had a neutral facilitator do 
focus group interviews with our community participants and then also with the medical students. But in addition to having those transcripts for qualitative research and also quantitative entrance and exit surveys, including the fat phobia scale, we asked our participants if we could keep their writing. And so almost all of them let us keep their quick writes mm -hmm. and then also those longitudinal narratives. And they are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just so rich and mm -hmm. so moving. We could tell different people latched on to different prompts, mm -hmm. you know, different weeks. And of mm -hmm. course, sometimes you have more time to write and less time to write. But that is really where some of the transformation or reconciliation happened in writing the same episode over and over and then getting to share how you change, right? right. How, how your past changes even as you go through this process right. and you share it with another person. I think another important point that was brought up during these focus group interviews was sort of the marginalia that occurred during the workshop. So it wasn't just the act of reading out loud their narratives, but the side conversations that would happen around what was being shared, like the commentary that the writer could add on to what they had written. Even though in the beginning, I think we told everyone, don't start <laughs> with like a disclaimer. Everyone kind of did that. And it, that ended up being actually really important because it allowed people like moments of looseness in the workshop that helped with promoting that closeness. But really specifically to Narrative Medicine's credit, I think it would be really difficult to ask people to just do the marginalia, right? Right. Oh, just talk about this time that really sucked for you versus <laughs> you are ostensibly talking about this other thing. Right. And then the rest is like an added right. benefit. And that's what we mean when we talk about coming at things obliquely or like from the side is right. what some people call it. And that's also what makes it different than just like a group therapy session right. is using texts and stories and writing mm. as a vehicle for these other things. Right. It's like a focal departure point. That's great phrasing. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little earlier about your hesitation or uncertainty about whether to, to go the more more direct route of, of narratives and other texts about fat in particular or whether to sort of bring people in using texts that are about quite other things. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you've got the balance right in terms of the textual choices that you made or are the things that you would do differently if you ran it again? I think there's there's actually quite a lot of really interesting fat literature like fat creative fiction that we really wanted access to but a lot of things are out of print mm -hmm. so that was one obstacle that we encountered. As far as whether we would choose texts that didn't deal so closely with fatness. I don't know. I, I think that was a really important component of our workshops, being able to look at these texts as valid and important narratives was something that our medical students probably would not have the chance to do because so much of what we read in literature is not really about, about fatness. Yeah, and we also... We had to strike a balance between choosing things that were about fatness, but weren't necessarily first-person narratives mm -hmm. of like, I went to the doctor and the doctor wouldn't touch right. me, right? We did opt for other genres. So they were texts about fatness, but they were still texts. And that made them analyzable in mm -hmm. the, the narrative medicine way. So that was really important that we didn't just take people's blog posts or something, right? As, right? as crucial as those are, they wouldn't have worked in this context. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So the idea that 
is that the indirectness can almost come less from the content than from a kind of a stylistic salience that makes people think, okay, this is worth spending some time analyzing. And right. Like, and fatness isn't just about the stigma. It's also about the creativity and mm. the interesting and amazing work that comes out of like thinking about this. It's, you know, we tried really hard not to pathologize fatness and we tried to reflect that in the text that we chose as well. So how do you think this kind of stuff is, or how has it already been received by your colleagues in healthcare or your medical student colleagues uh, who have not participated? Right, right. Actually, yeah, even, even in beginning to describe my project, I have to begin with a disclaimer about how I'm not trying to talk about the relationship between weight and health. I'm trying to talk about the relationship between weight stigma and health education. And even with that disclaimer, after I present my work, sometimes the first question that I'll get is like, but what about obesity causing heart disease? People are really, they really hold fast to these beliefs and they're really unwilling to shed them even in the face of like a direct challenge to that, which is partly why we created the handout of resources that lists, you know, a lot of journal articles of peer-reviewed research that challenges these assumptions about fatness. I, I haven't really pitched this idea as a core curriculum at the medical school. I think there's a couple more steps that we have to undertake to get there. Um, I don't know. I guess because our participants are medical students, like we're, like I said, a self-selecting group. I don't know how this would come across to students who, I don't know, for example, might want to pursue a career in bariatric surgery. Like, how would they receive it? To be honest, I've been a little scared about thinking about that just because, you know, it's, it's hard when the topic of your research encounters runs against, like, just commonly core beliefs in medical institutions. It's an emotionally and politically yeah, charged right. topic no matter what. And and for me, because I am a thin medical student, it's different for me to talk about this research than it is for Rachel to talk about it because people see me as kind of like one of them. It's hard for them to reconcile what I'm saying with like who they think I am. I think Rachel has probably had different experiences when describing our research to others. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, we move in different circles. And so uh, I've had mostly positive responses to it, but that's from people who know that I work in fat studies. One thing that was really interesting was when we were trying to recruit participants. So because I'm a fat grad student and Kelly is a thin medical student, we were able to reach out to sort of our respective communities. So I did all the recruiting of our community participants, whereas I wouldn't have even had access to medical students to do that kind of recruitment that Kelly could do. And so that was really interesting. I could definitely feel myself leaning on my reputation within the Southern California fat (laughs) activism community, which is not that big. But so that our community participants would trust mm-hmm. that I was someone who would make sure that what we were doing was ethical. Because all the time, fat people get asked to be part of research projects mm-hmm. and then are pathologized right. and dehumanized and re-traumatized and it sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, it was an early response to our work, I guess, trying to get people on board. 
that was a really interesting experience. Yeah, the idea of a collaborative partnership, the, the essence of which is so very personal. Right. On so, paper, uh, we would be very antagonistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we have other stuff in common, like a love of the Great British Baking Show. Oh, that's true. And yeah. Kelly's dog. <laughs> and Rachel's cat. And my cat. <laughs> so, um, I will also say, and this is something that is applicable to narrative medicine more generally, is that our method butts heads with medical education, Mm -hmm. right? It's not generalizable. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you can make uniform and implement regardless of time or place, right? It's always really specific to who's going to be in the room with you. Who's your facilitator? How much time do you have? How many workshops do you get to do? All of those things have to be taken into account for every single narrative medicine workshop. And so that's really hard to pitch to medical people because they're like, well, can we implement it in 15 schools? Or like, can who, who can lead the workshops? And I have to say, well, I have a master's degree for a reason. <laughs> Please hire me. But it's not something that can be universalized. And so that can create some resistance. Would you be interested nonetheless in trying to, to draw up some general principles on which other people could base similar workshops or to try and roll it out on a larger scale? And I suppose gather larger scale data. Would that be something in the future of the project? Do you mean in other areas of like stigma or like education? Well, I was just thinking of sticking with this format, but oh, know, right, seeing right. whether you could gather more extensive data on it. But of course, yeah, going beyond that too, if that's something that you've already considered. But I mean, maybe you hesitate in a quite a profound way about this universalizing thing. I, I don't yeah. know. It, it requires a lot of intent and preparation and resources that I don't, speaking as a medical student, I don't think that medical faculty have the capacity for. Medical humanities and the discussion about ethics and narratives, it's now like the hot topic in medical education. This radical idea that empathy can be created through the telling of stories, but it's still like within the medical curriculum itself. Like that is such a tiny component and it's covered in such a superficial manner that most students kind of dispose of it immediately. It's like, oh, just another hoop that we have to jump through. So I think until medical schools are willing and capable of prioritizing something like this, of making it central to our education rather than peripheral to it, it's going to be, I don't know, that that change has to occur before we can step in with another layer of intervention. Absolutely. And, I mean, I've had people contact me since I've been doing this work for a couple years now, and Kelly and I have presented in other places, people asking me, you know, can you give me a suggestion for what to include in this like panel that I'm going to do on weight bias in healthcare? And um, the whole point of these workshops was that you can't do as much with like a one-off, even day long. It's not quite enough because weight stigma is physiological, right? It's phenomenological. It's something embodied and hard to touch. And even if you intellectually battle mm-hmm. against it, most, at least Americans, are trained to have like a physical aversion to fatness, right? And that's not something that you can address in a panel. But at the very least, I will return to (laughs) what I said we started these workshops with, which is the presence of fat people Mm -hmm. is absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. It's so important any way you want to cut it. 
and if anyone is ever asking me for advice and it's just going to be them and they're thin, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll still help them, but with the caveat that they could be doing it a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're talking to a senior medic of some kind, say the director of a medical school or someone who holds the purse strings and they're they're skeptical, they don't think this stuff is worth funding, what do you say to them to try and change their mind? I think there is an abundance of data that shows that fat phobia is extremely harmful to people. If the premise of medicine is healing people and helping them live better and more comfortable lives, then challenging that weight stigma is a natural product of that desire. You can't ignore the fact that because of fat phobia, fat patients don't see their doctor, they don't go in for preventive visits, and even when they get there, they're treated so terribly that they don't want to come back. That is something that we can't allow to continue. Yeah. We have this real problem with the contradiction between fatness being something that is abnormal and pathological, right, as an embodiment, but also extremely common. The majority of adults in the United States and in the UK are considered overweight or obese. And I use those terms in quotes because I don't like to use them. But so what are you doing in healthcare if you're not actually caring for like 60 to 70 Mm percent of your population? I mean, what is that? It's absurd. As you say, the other part of that paradox is the constant hysteria about how desperately dangerous it is to be fat and then the complete neglect of the people who are. Right. I mean, it's... it's right. yeah, you're so calling them more sick and then you're denying <laughs> yeah. them the treatment that yeah. might help them be better. Absolutely. Was there anything that surprised you that you didn't expect to find in either the process of this or the findings? I think every time I come back to the transcript... I learned something new. It's hard to pinpoint a certain surprising moment because so much of it was quite like revelatory and transformative for me. It certainly influenced the way that I'm going to practice medicine in the future. Yeah, I don't know. Can you pin that down a tiny bit more? Something that surprised me. Um, or, or has transformed you. Right, thinking. right. I think because our medical students came from such a different background and age group, I was a little bit concerned about how everyone would kind of mingle together. But actually, there was a lot of like goofiness and fun that happened that I almost never get to see between people of such different environments. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of a reminder to me of our common humanity and all of that stuff. And in terms of how it's going to influence the way that I do medicine. I mean, at the root of of weight stigma and why it's a problem is like, how do we define health? Like who gets to define what health is? And I'm very excited to be grappling with that, with that topic in the future as a future psychiatrist. It's great that we've got medics of the future who are like you. (laughs) I would, I would say it sounds like I'm trying to brag and I'm not. I was surprised by how, great the workshops went (laughs) we were so invested in like why we thought our methods would work but you know also had this very cautious optimism of like 
well, they probably won't be exactly what we're envisioning them to be, so let's lower our expectations. And then, like, right off the bat, everything went as great as we could have possibly hoped for. Like Kelly said, our participants, they just had a really good time together. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more collegiality and Mm -hmm. fun that I was anticipating, and I thought maybe people would be more shy or resistant to sharing their work. And of course, we did encounter some of that. But for the most part, everyone kind of dove in head first. And um, at the very end, we left the room on the last workshop and we just left a, re- a recorder and we had them talk for like 10 minutes because we knew their focus groups were going to be separate. And those 10 minutes, the joy that is part of their conversation also how they teased us a little bit which I really Mm -hmm. appreciated as a facilitator we were really hoping to not have like a very hierarchical type thing it it turns out we didn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they were just even in five sessions like totally committed to one another Mm -hmm. and so I was surprised that everything we wanted to happen (laughs) kind of worked out I don't think that happens in research projects very much Good design and a bit of luck. <laughs> There's a lot of luck. I think it's our participants, really, mm-hmm. who made it who made it so awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So finally, could I ask both of you, do you have a burning research question for the future? Or a question of any kind for the future? Mm. I think one of the conclusions that we gathered from our data, and it was a conclusion that we, that kind of came suddenly to us, like very recently, was that the whole premise of stigma reduction is not a framework that we want to use in the future, that stigma reduction is this one-sided correction of a group of people's like incorrect beliefs, whereas I think what happened in our workshops was a lot more equitable. It wasn't as exploitative of, at least I hope that it wasn't as exploitative of a marginalized group. So looking forward, how are we going to modify our methodology or revise the questions that we ask to reflect this possibly a different framework like trauma-informed reconciliation, things like that, that do offer more collective growth rather than, again, this one-sided correction of stigma reduction? Yeah, like Kelly said, this this finding came, it was there, but we hadn't quite named it, that even though we kept saying, oh, we want fat people to be authorities on their own lives, I don't know, I guess I couldn't imagine actually breaking down that power dynamic, even at the very best. I was like, well, at least we can pay our participants and compensate them for their time and their emotional labor. Mm -hmm. But it was actually genuinely and truly reciprocal and agentic in a really cool way that I hope we can elicit moving forward. So I I feel kind of lucky that I am doing exactly what I want to do. My goal in life is just to make life better for fat people, and that directs all of my efforts, including this project. But it's a really great guiding force, Mm -hmm. a great way to measure what I'm doing at any given moment. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of Textual Therapies. To take a look at the accompanying notes and suggestions for further reading, 
to browse other episodes or to contact me to suggest other people I could talk to on the podcast in the future, please head over to my website at trishanko.com. The reason I set up the series was really to galvanise conversations and to help interested parties compare notes. So if listening today has given you any ideas or resonated with something you've researched or experienced, please do write to me or to Kelly and Rachel directly. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you.